to have you with us. And uh, yeah, what a beautiful day, eh? Cold one. A little bit shocking. Somebody asked me, is this normal for October around here? I said, I don't think so. So sweet. It's great to have you here with us. And thanks for leading us in worship, Ken. And uh, yeah, hey, um, I know Lisa's going out with the kids that are here. So if the kids want to go out, Lisa's at the back door. And uh, she said, bring your jacket. Okay, so I think that means you're outside a little bit. So any of the kids that want to join her, okay? And uh, sweet. Hey, just a couple of announcements, a few things to let you know about with regards to this week. Um, first of all, uh, no girls with swords uh, this week. I guess it's just postponed or something. So I'm not totally sure what that is, but just uh, for the ladies that are involved with that. And then, of course, we got our regular women's prayer meeting, men's prayer meeting, and we got our midweeker this week. I'm, I'm looking forward to that on Wednesday night, walk through the Bible. We're going to be in... Um, 2nd Thessalonians. So if you like talking about the second coming of Jesus, you should come join us on Wednesday night at 7, okay? We're going to take a good, good look at that in 2nd Thessalonians. And then also uh, we got prayer tonight at 7. And then I just want to mention one more thing, because uh, after prayer, we're going to have a brief meeting, and it's for uh, the parents of our teens, if you're able to come and join us. Some of, some of you have spoken with already, some I haven't had a chance to yet, but um, We've just been having a little bit of a conversation as we look at our kids and the education they're receiving and the world values that are being poured into them. And we said, man, we want to just combat that more and more all the time. And so uh, we decided we're going to do like a worldview class, a biblical worldview class for our, our youth. And so um, we're going to meet tonight after prayer from 8 till 8.30 just to bring parents up to speed on what, that's, what that looks like and some of the stuff we're going to talk about as we talk about how, how the Bible shapes the way that we look at this world, history, the values that we have, all of these sorts of things. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to spend time doing Bible with each other at the same time. And um, so we're meeting tonight from 8 till 8.30. We'll keep it pretty quick. And then our plan is this, is that we're going to launch into it um, on the first week of November. And just as we've been dreaming, we thought, you know, maybe this will actually lead to the point where we could offer credits for our kids towards their high school eventually. And so we're going to start with six weeks um, through from uh, the first week of November and then uh, just go from there. Okay, so parents, I encourage you to come join us um, tonight, okay, from 8 till 8.30 after prayer. So that means come to prayer and then... Uh, and then we'll have that meeting. Sweet. Would you guys stand with me for a sec? Let's pray. Let's pray. But as we do, I just, I just feel like this as we come to church that we should just take a deep breath because <sighs> we're here with God's people and with our church family and in the house of God, the ecclesia, the, the gathering of those who are here to worship Jesus. And if there's anywhere in this world right now that you can take a deep breath, it's with the people of God. Amen. The word of God says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, as we um, come to gather around your word this morning, we just thank you, God, for the living word. We thank you for the written word that leads us to you, Jesus, the living word. And Jesus, we want to sit at your feet, want to experience your presence, Lord, want to hear you speak to us. We want to be like uh, Mary who took that posture at your feet. And this morning, we just pray that we would see you, Jesus, clearly in your word. We pray, God, that we would be strengthened and encouraged and uh, that your spirit would speak to us. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, you may be seated. Now, if you got your Bibles... We are looking at Jesus in the book of Judges. So you can turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. And Yeah, book of Judges. Did I say Judges? Did I say something? I keep, you know, we're going from Joshua to Judges, so I keep in my mind saying Joshua. So if I say Joshua, I'm talking about Judges, okay? <laughs> right on. Yeah, so we're going to pick it up in verse 6. And it's interesting because most of what we're going to look at this morning kind of serves like a second introduction to the book of Judges. We, we looked at an introduction last week, and now it's like, hey, this is kind of weird. There's two introductions to this book. And I was thinking about it, it's kind of like this, like if you came over to my house and Lisa took you for a little tour around the house and showed you all the rooms, she'd point out, I don't know, paint colors and maybe this from her mom or whatever, something that she's fiddling with around the house or something that's meaningful, maybe family photos. And you did the little tour of the house and then I said, hey, yeah, let me show you something. And then I took you and walked you around the exact same house into all the exact same rooms and I would look at totally different things. Let's say, that plug, we moved that one and we put it over there and we knocked out that wall and we renovated this and we did this. And we're going to go through the same house, the exact same rooms, and Lisa's going to give you one perspective. I'm going to give you another. That's the difference between chapter one and chapter two, okay? It's like a second tour through the rooms of the house. And uh, so in the first introduction to the book of Joshua, let me, let me explain. Like, tour number one was like this. Uh... We began with the death of Joshua and then the appearing of the angel of the Lord, uh, Jesus, who announced that Israel had not obeyed all the things that the Lord had commanded them. And in chapter one, the introduction served like this. It was like chronological geography really mattered. The, the names of the tribes really mattered. And it was like, hey, they lost this city and they won this battle in the mountains, but they lost over here in, in the valleys and there's this description that's geographic and physical of the land that they were not able to conquer or they were able to conquer, and we read about their laziness and their compromise with the things of God. Then you come to chapter 2, like we're going to dive in from verse 6 here on, the second introduction, the second tour through the house, and this time the, the author doesn't focus on geography, that doesn't matter. Um, physical descriptions don't matter. Instead, this time he's going to zoom in on the spiritual things that are happening. What was happening amongst the people of God in their hearts? What was the spiritual reasons, reasons for Israel's current condition and why they hadn't won victory in the land? And we're going to see this, that failure to drive out the enemy was clearly a spiritual issue. Failing to drive them out wasn't a physical problem. 
It wasn't a geographic challenge. It wasn't about their military prowess or, or their strategy of war from the mountains to the lowlands or whatever it was. The problem was spiritual. There was idolatry in the hearts of God's people and in the practices of their life. There was sin in the hearts of those who were called to live for the Lord. And so just like the first introduction, the second introduction is interesting because, again, it starts at the exact same spot with the death of Joshua. And I guess I would just point out, in in this book of of Judges, Joshua, who is called the servant of the Lord, we're about to read that, he's a servant of the Lord, kind of serves as the standard by which all others are measured. He's the standard. Joshua is the yardstick. And so everyone in the book of Judges is held up against Joshua, the yardstick. And they say, this Joshua is what a servant of the Lord looks like, and everyone is measured against him. And even so today, we know this, that all mankind is measured against one man. One Joshua, the one man, the servant of the Lord, against whom all others are measured, Jesus. King Jesus, he is the plumb line against which all others are evaluated. Every life is weighed in the scales, and it's weighed against him. One man, the Son of Man, God's anointed, Christ Jesus. And this is important for our text this morning. So we're going to read about Joshua. Let's pick it up. Verse 6 says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So Joshua, as we read here, we we see a man who lived life well for the Lord. He's called the servant of the Lord. After experiencing God's deliverance by a mighty hand from the land of Egypt, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness uh, and experiencing the wonder-working power of God, Joshua succeeded Moses. He led the children of Israel over the Jordan into the land of promise where he received his inheritance and was finally buried in that land. And after his death, the author focuses in on the generation of Israelites that arose after Joshua and the elders that served with him. And he tells us two things about this generation, that it was a generation that did not know the Lord and did not know what he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord and they did not know what God had done for Israel. Now the word know, K-N-O-W, does not mean that they did not know the history of God's people. It wasn't that they weren't familiar with the exodus And the the miraculous passing through the Red Sea. It's not that they didn't know the stories about the walls of Jericho or the covenant that their fathers had made with the living God. 
But what it means is this. It means that these things did not hold the same value to them as it did to their fathers. They knew about the Lord, (laughs) but they didn't know the Lord. They knew about the things that God had done for Israel, but they did not have personal knowledge or personal experience with the living God. And we know this, that there there is a difference between knowledge about the Lord and having a personal relationship with Jesus. There's a difference, isn't there? In our lives, we do not do well to think that they're one and the same. Knowledge about the Lord and a personal relationship with Jesus, they're different. And that was Israel's problem here. As we read, they had head knowledge without heart knowledge, information without personal experience, knowing about the Lord without knowing the Lord God. And this new generation could not live on the reputation of Joshua. They could not live on the past reputation of the elders who served with Joshua. A new generation had to prove the Lord. They had to prove God for themselves. In their generation, in the midst of their culture, amongst the people whom they were living, they had to learn from the past but not rest upon the past. And Joshua's generation died out and this new generation had to prove the Lord for themselves. They had to own it. That's how I would say it. They had to own their relationship with the Lord. And church, the same is true for us. The Bible tells us, and it's, it's actually from Scripture. We hear people say it, but it's actually from Scripture, that God does not have grandchildren. If, if your parents walk with the Lord, the faith of your father or the faith of your mother... I mean, that's great. They're children of God, but you have to have your own relationship with the Lord because the Father in heaven only has children. He does not have grandchildren. And faith in Jesus, it's like, you know, as we talk about that, the faith of our fathers and our own faith, faith in Jesus is not something that's like learned by osmosis. It just magically translates into your life. Faith in Jesus cannot be lived out vicariously, Faith in Jesus is not a football game like a ball that's handed off. Faith in Jesus isn't a stretch pass or a drop pass or a Hail Mary. Faith is a personal experience with the living God, the Savior of the world, King Jesus. And you can have that, a personal relationship of faith and trust with Jesus. Amen? There was a time, you know, when my faith was the faith of my parents. There was a time when my faith was the faith of my family or the faith of my grandparents. But then it became mine. Mine. I owned it. Me and Jesus, I met the Lord. He spoke to me through his word and he filled me with his spirit. He worked miracles in my life, things that were just between him and I that that proved to me that I could trust him. You know, I I could stand, like many of you, I I, I could stand and I could tell you stories of faith of my grandparents. You know, I could tell you stories of faith of of my parents, but you know what? I got my own story. And I know the same is true for many of you. You have your own story with Jesus. And some, some that are here 
this morning might be still sorting out where you're at with Jesus. And if you're in that spot, you're in that spot where you're still sorting out things with Jesus, I would just say to you this, that you need to know this, that Jesus longs to know you and to be known by you, that it's yours, personal, you and him. And so as we talk about knowing the Lord, the difference, uh, there is a difference between knowledge and experience. Knowledge about the Lord and a personal relationship with the Lord, and that was what was missing with the children of Israel, this new generation. They were missing that. You know, I'm missing a coffee right now. I just kind of had this urge to... Verse 11, check it out. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who are around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Wow. Now, just before we dive into that, I just got to talk to my sound guys, because they got music coming through my speakers right here. <laughs> just let them know that. I'm enjoying it. You guys can't hear it, but it's good music. <laughs> there we go. It's gone. Sweet. Um, so we read here about what was going on with Israel, and we, and we see this, that failure to know the Lord, the fact that they didn't know God, led to behavior that God counted as sin. He counted it as evil. He counted it as rebellion against him. What they did was evil in their sight, as the text tells us. They did not worship uh, the God who had rescued their forefathers, and instead, they decided that they would become like the people around them. It's interesting that this is always the pressure that is on the people of God. That we would turn from worshiping the Lord and we would become like the peoples and the culture around us. And the people who they became like were people who didn't know anything about the Lord. They became like these people and they worshiped their idol gods. And in doing so, the author tells us that they provoked the Lord to anger they, they provoked God and his anger, anger against the sin of his people. Now, I think about that, and I think, you know, we don't like to talk about the anger of God very much. It's like, look how squeaky. We don't like to talk about the anger of God. It's like, you know, it's not always so comfortable. It's like, talk about his love, because that's palatable. That's comfortable. That makes us feel safe. When we talk about the anger of the Lord, it's like, whoa. Love goes down easy. Love goes down easy. Not so much anger. Not so sure how to respond to anger when we talk about God's anger. But I guess I would say this. We would be very mistaken if we were to confuse God's love and his anger. Anger is, is not simply the opposite of love, but rather his anger was the outworking of his love against the rebellion of his people. 
like a good parent. The love and anger of God led him to discipline his children. To discipline those who belong to him. Because the covenant relationship was at stake. Their future was at stake. Their safety was at stake. God cared so deeply. And because he was so deeply committed to those who belonged to him, his anger was provoked. Because he disciplines those he loves. And verse 15 says something interesting to me. It says this, that that the hand of the Lord was against them. In the book of Exodus, it tells us, I, I love the picture of God's hand in Scripture. The book of Exodus tells us that his hand was mighty to bring them out of Egypt. But here it tells us that that same hand, that same mighty hand that led them out of Egypt was now heavy against them and pressed against them. And incredibly, it's like, Amazing how quickly the story of God's people turned. The very people Israel had been called to drive out of the land, those Canaanites, instead of driving them out, they joined them in worship. The very altars that they were called to destroy, they instead brought their sacrifices to. Instead, the very altars that they were called to destroy, they now bowed down at. And they served to worship the gods of those whom were supposed to be their enemies. You know, it's, I mean, we even talked about this last week, that Israel enslaved many of these uh, people, but now they became enslaved to their gods. They became enslaved to the idols of those whom they had enslaved. It's bizarre. You know, idolatry always leads to slavery. You will be mastered by what you worship. Idolatry robs robs us of of life and freedom. But worshiping Jesus is so different. You know, when we worship Christ Jesus, we discover true life, abundant life, eternal life. When we worship Jesus, we discover true freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. Real love can be found. Real freedom can be found in a relationship with King Jesus. And so as we look at this introduction, what we're going to discover here is a cycle. We're being introduced to a cycle that is going to repeat over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's like wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. And it's this. Israel's going to slide into idolatry. In his anger, God is going to hand them over to his enemies. In their distress, they're going to call on the Lord. And the Lord is going to raise up a judge who will deliver them. And then after a period of returning to the Lord and experiencing his blessing, Israel is going to again slide into idolatry to an even greater level, that's the discouraging thing about the book of Judges. That's what I just tell you. This one thing, it's like every time we go through this wash, rinse, repeat cycle, it's going to be worse than the previous one. Just a heads up, okay? You can look forward to it. <laughs> wash, rinse, repeat. Actually, it's not just a cycle. It's like a downward vortex, a downward spiral of rebellion that successively gets deeper and deeper and this progressive deterioration that gets more difficult to climb out of. And the root of the problem is the worship of other gods. 
The root of the problem is worshiping at the altars that they should have torn down. And the Lord, you know, to his people would say this, hey, this is, this is like a marriage, man. This is an exclusive relationship, you following me, this covenant relationship. I'm jealous for you. I'm not going to put up with you going after and worshiping the gods, the idol gods of the nations around you. And so he's going to apply his anger and let their enemies loose. And as they call out to him in distress, he's going to bring relief and he's going to raise up a judge. But when the judge dies, the cycle is going to repeat over and over. It's just like coming to the dishwasher in the morning. You know, when you open it up, it's like, oh, it's all dirty still. And then you have to rerun it. And I think this cycle of judges tells us something. There's a message here that we need something better than a human judge. Something more permanent than a judge who can only rule for 40 years or 10 years or whatever it is. Something more than physical, than a physical deliverer. We need a deliverer for our soul. The judges that we're going to look at, they're, they're, they were all mighty deliverers. But they themselves are going to be flawed men and women. I'll just give you that heads up. We're going to see that they're flawed. And what we need, what you and I need, is a judge who will truly set us free. Set us free from sin. Set us free from death. This is all foreshadows. Foreshadows of the coming of Jesus. And so the author tells us what the Lord would do to his people as... as uh, so that, actually, so that they would call out to him in distress. So check out verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. So these judges, actually, let me just pause here for a second. The judge, the Hebrew word for judge is, that's translated judge in English, means a rescuer or one who saves. These judges are going to be people who lead Israel in great military victories with the help of God's Spirit, Rather than leading the whole nation of Israel, they might instead be just like regional leaders or in charge of certain tribes, but they're called judges, but they serve as military leaders and they serve as like spiritual counselors for the people of God. So let's, let's read on again here. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after, the, after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test them 
whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So yeah, here's just like this summary of the introduction, this repeated pattern that we're going to see over and over again. As long as there was a judge leading Israel, everything was fine. But once he would die, uh, men and women would then do as they saw fit. And they were half-hearted in serving the Lord. In fact, they totally turned away from serving the Lord. And it's interesting that the, the word that the author uses is they hoard themselves after other gods. It's like they treated their own lives. They acted like prostitutes spiritually. And they committed spiritual adultery against the one to whom they were to be married, the Lord. And because of the idol-worshiping attitude of the people, the Lord said, I'm, not gonna, I'm no longer am I going to drive out your enemies before you. Instead, he says to them in verse 22, and this is important, that he would leave those nations among them in order to test them. If you got a pen, you might want to underline that word test in verse 22. Any of you like tests? <laughs> Math tests, I don't know, driver's tests, tests. Oh, man, we don't love tests, but some tests are good. Like when the mechanic tests your brakes, that's a good test. <laughs> that's a test you want to have happen. Like, absolutely. Like, it's good that doctors go through exams because they're like dealing with your health. Your future. It's good that the electrician knows how to wire a house or he might burn it down. There's got to be tests and exams. And it says here that the Lord tested them. The test wasn't for the Lord. God's omniscient. What, what Israel would do was no guessing matter for the Lord. He wasn't wondering. He wasn't wondering. He knows all things from beginning to end. The test wasn't for the Lord's sake, but it was for the sake of the people so that by the test, the Lord could root out and expose the idolatry in, the, in their hearts. And so a test, a test is like, like just a definition for a test is a procedure used to measure the quality or the performance of something. And in this case, it was God's people. And God was measuring, not for his benefit, but for theirs. He was measuring the quality of what was in their hearts. And God does the same to you and I all the time, church. It's like, let me ask this. Like, what test are you dealing with right now? What's the exam that you're in the middle of? Like in life and what you're experiencing. It might be, you know, I might even say like, what, what is the enemy standing against God in your life? And God uses these things. He uses them to force us to think about our relationship with him. It's like, just look around the world today. Like, what is going on? Politics and illness and pandemic and COVID. And we know the whole thing. Look at God is using all of these things to test the hearts of people. It's not because he doesn't know what's in our hearts. It's because we don't know what's in our hearts. He knows. We don't. So he tests us. 
And he forces us to consider all things, what we value and what we worship. He forces us to consider his son Jesus. He forces us to consider our ways, forces us to consider the things that we value and the things that we worship. Church, there's a test going on. We're in the middle of the test. And it's designed to reveal the hearts of God's people and not just God's people, all people. The world is not business as usual. It is not business as usual. It's exam time. And this might be the pretest for the final. Might be just a practice test, but either way, it's a test, and we should search our hearts, church, in the midst of everything that's going on in these days. We should search our hearts, correct our values, root out the idolatry of our lives, uh, turn to the wisdom of the Lord and the wisdom of his ways, and to live as those who are called to serve him. Or we can just bow down to the altars of this world and the idols that are around us. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had never known it, who had not known it before. So we get a second reason the Lord leaves these nations. The first one's for a test. It's for the test. But the second reason these nations are left behind was to teach war to God's people. Warfare for those who had never experienced battle. You know, it's interesting to think about this. Like, why do God's people need to experience war or warfare or our application this morning, spiritual warfare? Why do we need to experience spiritual warfare? I mean, just to illustrate for application purposes, like, I don't know war. I don't know nothing about war. Except documentaries that I watch on Netflix. My generation knows nothing of war in Canada. We are a generation in Canada that basically, like our, our last veterans from World War II, like there, there's like just handfuls of them left in the entire country. We're not a nation that knows war. We're not a people that knows war. We're, we're, we, we've lived with peace. I don't know war. Military combat. And God's people need to know war. And I'm talking about spiritual warfare. And why do we need this experience? Well, you know, there's that, there's that saying about war. I love this saying about, about war. They say this, that in the trenches, there are no what? Do you know it? Atheists. In the trenches, there are no atheists. Why? Because you don't know how long you're going to live. If you didn't weren't a believer in God, the moment you find yourself staring down the, at the weapon of the enemy, you quickly turn into a theist. You believe in the Lord. There is no atheist in the trenches. 
And church, when we experience spiritual warfare, the purpose of that is that God is teaching us to depend upon him in the midst of everything. What, why how we respond in the midst of this pandemic matters is because Jesus is teaching us to depend on the Lord in the midst of everything. You know why we need to know that? Because I'm one who believes that there is more trouble coming. We must depend on Jesus in everything. The Joshua generation had entered the promised land and they were a generation who trusted the Lord. They relied on him. They depended on the promises of God. Whatever they faced, they had to fight trusting God for victory on the basis of his promises. What? Walk around the walls of Jericho? <laughs> what? Step into the waters of the Jordan River? They had to learn to be obedient to the promises of God. When they were facing giants, when they were facing enemies that seemed greater than them, when they faced armies that outnumbered them, they stood on the promises of God who was greater than the enemy. When they were entering battle situations, they were faced with this constant question, will I do what the Lord says? And church, that is the question before us. Will we be men and women who do what the Lord says in spite of consequences? Will you obey the commands of the Lord or will you bow down to the idols of the peoples around you? Church, we're in the midst of a great test which God is revealing to us what is in our hearts. He is teaching us about spiritual warfare. He's, he's showing us the level of commitment in our lives to his commands. Will we trust? Will we obey? Will we trust that God is greater than any enemy we face? Let's read on, verse 3. It says this, we're going to go through to verse 11 this morning. It says this, These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived at Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon, as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is tragic right here, verse 6. And their daughters took, and their daughters they took to themselves for their wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Man. The Lord had just, he spoke so much about this. Don't give your sons and daughters to these nations. Don't give your sons and daughters to these peoples, to their values, to the gods that they worshiped. It's tragic you read this. The Lord had been so specific about not intermarrying with the nations around them. They failed the test. Verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Asherahs. And this is brutal. Like this is just, they served Baals and Asherahs. 
I, I, I was going to rant about this. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I got the green light. <laughs> From the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right on. I will for a second. I want to point out to you three things that are common in the worship of idols. It's very important. You will identify this everywhere in our culture, okay? It's one thing in our culture, we look around and we say, well, where are the idols in our culture? What are the Baals? What are the Asherahs? We don't have those things in our culture. What are the altars that bow down to? There are three things that are extremely common to the worship of idols. And this is what Israel participated in. And I think it's worth just mentioning here. The first one is this. Serving idol gods involved sexual immorality. Idol worship always involves sexual immorality. Now, it's very important that I say this for the sake of the church. Because God's people are called to live with different sexual values than the idol worshipers of this world. God has designed a place where there is to be a a healthy expression of sexuality and it is within marriage between a man and a woman. Idolatry and idolatrous cultures always look to move the goalposts of God's values with regards to sexuality. So let me just chuck it out there. Is that happening around us? Yes. Second characteristic of idol worshipers. Serving these idol gods always involved human sacrifice. This is why the world and those who worship idol gods fight so hard to abort, to murder the lives of the unborn. They are idol worshipers. Broke my heart last night. Saw something on, online. A 104-year-old woman. I don't know if you've seen this. Locked up in a senior's home in Britain. They're filming her and she's crying. Knows that her days are numbered. She says, let me out. I just want to see my family. It's like a form, you guys, church. We need to be fighting for the rights of seniors. They need to be let out, man. They're locked up like prisoners. It's wrong. I hear stories of people that will get a half an hour visit once a week. It's wrong. It's sin. It's idolatry. The third characteristic of idol worshipers is this. They will incorporate into their lives the worship of nature. Whoa, does that sound like our culture? Worshiping creation rather than creator. You can spot idol worship by these three factors always. Sexual immorality, human sacrifice, and nature worship. And these are the practices of the culture in which we live. In church, we have to be different. As God's people, we have to be different than the idol worshipers around us. Following Jesus shapes our sexuality. Following Jesus gives the value that we put on human life. We worship Father God, not Mother Earth. 
And as Israel turned from the Lord, they became, they, they, they dove into these things. These are the things they dove into as they turned from the Lord. Sexual immorality, human sacrifice, nature worship. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, I don't know how to say that, Rishathium, king of Aram, Naharam, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. The name of that king, it means this, double darkness. That's not an option at Tim Hortons. The Lord sold his people into the hand of double darkness. Wow. So tragic. Would be even more tragic if that's where the story ends. But if God's caught people call on him, if they call on him, he is mighty to save. The Lord hears those who call on him. The word of God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 9, but when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them, the spirit of the Lord came on him. So that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave double darkness, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Man, praise the Lord. God's people cried out. And God raised up a deliverer because the Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, looking to show mercy to those who call upon him, not willing that any should perish. I don't think even as you read this that there was any repentance. <laughs> they just called out, man, like in desperation. They had nothing left to do. They called out and the Lord went to work on their behalf. I mean, I love, I love testimonies like that. Like there's several in our church, testimonies that I know, salvation stories that I know where, they, where there were people in our church who didn't even know the gospel, but you know what they did? They called out, they cried out. And the Lord sent his deliverer. They called out to the Lord and they discovered that there was a deliverer and his name is Jesus. This man, Othniel, I mean, we really don't have much information about him. It's like that's the whole story of judge number one right there. We know he's related by blood and by marriage to Caleb, who was a valiant man. I imagine, like in my mind, that the valiant spirit of Caleb was in Othniel, but it was not his personal character that led him to being used by the Lord. There was one simple factor in the life of Othniel that made him a judge and a deliverer. Did you see what it was? The Spirit of the Lord was on him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's a transformed man right there. And church, this is the key to being mighty in battle for the kingdom of God. This is the key in the face of any test. 
This is the key as the Lord trains our hands for war, to be filled with the Spirit, to be walking in the Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, the facts are real simple. Othniel just did this. He delivered God's people from their enemy. And as long as they had Othniel, you know what it says? They had peace. As long as they had Othniel, they had peace. Israel's experience of peace was dependent on the presence of this man who was their deliverer, anointed by the Spirit. The only problem being that after 40 years, he died. And their peace went with him. Their deliverance went with his death. And what Israel needed was a deliverer who would never die. Or should I say a deliverer who would defeat sin and defeat death and defeat the grave and who might go to a cross and pay for their sin but rise from the dead and be victorious over the grave and be one filled with the Spirit, our deliverer, King Jesus. Praise His name. And you know, it says here that they had pieces as long as Othniel was there with them. You know what? That's us right there. As long as we got Jesus. Peace, man. Peace. Great is the peace of those who trust in Jesus. Judges gives one yardstick to measure all these men. It was Joshua. We're given one yardstick by which all of us are measured. <laughs> it's Jesus. And the Bible tells us that all fall short of his glory. All fall short. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But the Bible also tells us that the Lord saves any who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm so glad that in our generation, the Lord has sent a deliverer, Jesus, who died and has been raised from the dead and who lives forevermore, who will save whosoever shall call upon his name. Church, we need to be men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you going through tests? Let me just remind you, your hands are being trained for war. Walk with Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. Obey Him in all things. Ken, come on up here, man. We're going to just close in. And Song, would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that as we prayed, the written word leads us to the living word. So, Jesus, we turn our hearts to you. Jesus, we give you our lives. Jesus, we cry out to you, deliver us. Save us. Jesus, lead us through this test. Jesus, train our hands for war. Jesus, be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus, help us to obey you. Help us to obey your word. Lord, this morning we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might be men and women who walk in